Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Today we're bringing you Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 19, Timothy Lane Gribble, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. We're going to start out by bringing you um, our first victim, uh, Elizabeth L. Jones, also known as Libby. So Elizabeth L. Jones was a 36-year-old Clear Lake Shores woman who worked at IBM at the um, Johnson Space Center. She was a computer specialist who actually worked on the shuttle program. She was also a former Clear Lake Shores councilwoman. And for those of you who don't know where Clear Lake Shores is, it is up near League City, kind of NASA Parkway, that area there, outside of Houston. It's it's really close to uh, where the Johnson Space Center is. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're looking for where the Johnson Space Center is kind of on the map, you'll be able to find Clear Lake Shores. It's also like Clear Lake yeah. City. Mm-hmm. So on September 8th, 1987, Libby, as she was referred to by her friends, talked to her boyfriend on the phone about 7.30 p.m. and mentioned that she was not feeling well. She was going to go to bed early, but she was waiting for the roofer to leave. He was loudly hammering away on the roof. The next morning, when she did not show up for work, her friends and co-workers uh, were worried about her. And so they drove out to the house to see if she was okay. They found her car was there in the driveway, but she was not there, or at least not outside. They couldn't get into the house. So they went ahead and called the police. The police got a search warrant for the house, and they entered the house. The police at that point in time said they did not see any signs of violence or any unusual activity inside the house. They did find a wine bottle in the trash can and cigarette butts all over the house. Libby and her boyfriend both did not smoke. Things from her home were sent to the lab. Um, So it's a little strange kind of here, you know, with the whole there was no violence or anything in the house. I'm not real sure, though, when police went in, you know, if they would have exactly known, you know, what they were looking for. I think what they're talking about is there's no tables overturned. It doesn't look like the house is broken into, but there was enough there for them to think that the cigarette butts and possibly the wine bottle were unusual. Mm -hmm. Out of place. And that may have come uh, through the friends and that may have come kind of through the boyfriend who kind of mentioned, you know, the phone call and, and that type of thing. So that may have been kind of why they were, going ahead and collecting those things, but then we locked up back the home. Work was being done on the house other than just the new roof. So the police went ahead and contacted her contractor and spoke to him, got names of the people who were working on the house. And at that point in time, the name of Timothy Lane Gribble came up that he was the roofer. Her friends also started kind of a um, volunteer group, an all-out search group. So they actually printed 2,500 posters, and they began circulating them around the Galveston County and the area up there near Clear Lake Shores. Although he was not a suspect from police, they went ahead and brought Timothy Lane Gribble, who was 24 years old at the time, in. Um he was brought into question because they thought that it was possible that he was the last person who had seen her before her disappearance. He stated that he had um, 
left the house in the evening. He had knocked on the door to tell her that he would be back the next day to finish up and that she allowed him inside to wash his hands. Shortly after the questioning with this, when police did go ahead and pull Gribble's history, and he had a long history of violence and violence against women. Starting in 1981, when he was 18 years old, he had burglarized his own father's home. And then later that year, he was convicted of false imprisonment of a Texas City woman. And in that case, he had broken into the home of a 15-year-old girl, um, found in order to see a 15 year old girl found her found her mother who was 54 years old and he uh raped her mother that same year he was also picked up for possession of a controlled substance with all of those cases together he pled guilty to only one crime which was the imprisonment charge and he was given a 10-year probation sentence Later, then in 1983, he offered a ride to another 15-year-old girl. He raped her for several hours and was convicted on forcible rape and sentenced to five years in prison, of which he only served two. What's weird, I think, at that point, too, is when he's convicted that time, they do revoke his 10-year probation sentence, right? Yeah. But they never go back, the police or, or the DA or whoever never really go back and, you know, put the original sentence on him. Right. Which I find kind of odd at that time. It it definitely like is. Like it's just overlooked almost. It's, it almost is like it's overlooked. You know, his probation is revoked, obviously, because he's violated it by committing another crime. And then when he's given the five-year sentence, it's almost like it's the 10-year sentence that he should have served was kind of wrapped into that. And again, this is one of those, you know, times when it just seems like if we were, if we as society, I mean, we're paying just a little bit more attention to these repeat offenders. I mean, you have a guy who breaks into a 15-year-old girl's home. I don't think he was just saying hi. And he rapes her mother. Then years later, he gets in a hold of another 15-year-old girl and he rapes her. You know, obviously back then we didn't have the sex offender laws that we have now, but it's just there should have been some awareness and some acknowledgement of uh, yeah of the past mm -hmm. you know past crimes i say so when he's released from that two-year sentence um from prison he shortly after that meets and marries a woman named tammy she's a single mother of two girls um she said she could not believe that her husband would um, commit any type of violent crime, that he was the nicest guy um, and he was a great father to her girls. She did state that she was aware of his previous arrests, that um, she just felt that he had reformed. Um, at the time, she also wanted people to know, you know, that he was trying to be a great provider for her and his girls, that he was working several jobs, including a job at his father's gas station, the roofing job. He was trying to get um, his father's old uh, rental car business up and off the ground. And that would have been a rental car business that his father owned in Santa Fe, Texas. And so that he was trying to be a good provider for her and the family. So over the next couple of weeks, there was no sign of Libby. Her friends and family held extensive searches. So 
at that point in time, her husband hires a private investigator to look at her ex-husband, I'm sorry, hires a private investigator to look into her disappearance. The private investigator um, goes ahead and decides that he's going to um, question Gribble. He questions him and then Gribble admits to him that he had been in the, at the house working and after a while that he may have touched some items. He also admits that the wine bottle and the cigarette butts found in the house belong to him. <laughs> this to me at that, at that point is, you know, very concerning. Mm -hmm. So is that you have him, you know, admitting to that. Uh, the investigator, um, does talk to police. I believe that police also talk to Gribble about this, but at this point in time, probably feeling like they don't have enough to arrest him. He leaves. When he leaves, he disappears. He leaves town. Um, it's one of the things that is happened here is that he's not only leaving town in order to avoid questioning in Libby's case, he's actually fleeing to avoid arrest on charges of sexual assault of his ex-wife. He had gone to his ex-wife's home, broke into her home and sexually assaulted her on September 17th. And so he's fleeing because he knows that that's imminent, that that's coming. So, um, when he left town, police went out and tried to question Tammy about his whereabouts. She stated that she didn't know where he was, but that he had left town in order to make money for her and the girls and to send money home. She stated that she was sticking by him and that she knew about his past, but he was never violent. At the end of September, so few few more days later, he was arrested in Tennessee for the sexual assault of his ex-wife in Harris County. So that's the one that happened on the 17th. So he had, had uh, fled to Tennessee. When um, he's arrested in Tennessee, he waves extradition as and brought back down to Harris County. At this point in time, this gives the police the chance to go in and question him again on Libby's disappearance because he's in custody at that point. So they go in from the police from Clear Lake Shores, go in and question him. And on October 5th, 1987, he confesses to police that he had murdered Libby and then he leads them to her body. He stated that he did not leave the home. He did leave the home after washing his hands, but he returned to the home, knocked on the door, telling Libby that he had left his wallet. She let him in and he grabbed her, repeatedly raping her during the night. He also stated that he asked her not to tell anyone, but that she told him that she was going to report it. After that, he forced her into his car and drove her to an abandoned field in Lake City off of Interstate 45, which we talked about quite a bit, and the um, 646. He told her that he was going to leave her tied to a tree and all he wanted to do was spend time with his wife and his stepchildren before he went to jail. She began to scream and he was scared that her screaming would alert people to her location. So he strangled her with the sash from her bathrobe. Afterwards, he went back to her house and finished working on the roof. 
<laughs> this gets me every single time because it's just like a normal day at the office for this guy. Yeah. You know, you've raped and murdered this woman. You've put her body in a field and then you go back to work. Right. You know, I mean, that's just like so weird. I guess how can you be that collected, I guess? Well, you know, I, I part of me believes that maybe he did it because if he hadn't showed up at her house, he felt like he would be a suspect at that point in time. But the interesting part like of he it. He needed it for the alibi. Right, he needed uh -huh. it for the alibi. But the <laughs> other thing that really gets me about him is when he makes this confession, there are several points where he like almost tries to justify killing her. Like he told her that if she just wouldn't report it, he was going to leave and and she would be fine like that was her responsibility to tell him fine i won't report it mm -hmm. i'll just let this go and then you know he justifies the fact that he kills her by saying you know he was gonna leave her tied to a tree but because she started screaming he had to go back and strangle her because he only wanted to spend time with his mm -hmm. wife and stuff he, he's victim blaming her yeah. at that point you for know her, like it's her fault it's her fault mm -hmm. like she would just be alive today if she had just followed what i had asked her to do right um and uh and so when he leads them to her remains found in that field they actually do find her partially skeletized remains with the ligature still around her bones and then um, and then had been what about a month right right about a month mm -hmm. yeah so she's uh she's basically killed on the morning of the ninth um and then this would be october 6th of mm -hmm. 1987 and so yeah roughly about a month and then at that point in time, he also states that he could not sleep or eat because he felt so guilty. Oh, poor baby. So, but he managed to run to Tennessee and he also managed to stop in before doing that to rape his ex-wife. Right. So I, I, I would assume that, you know, he wasn't having that much guilt about it. You know, what's weird about that too. It's, you know, he goes and assaults his ex-wife, like that she can identify him. Mm -hmm. Doesn't kill her, you know? I, all I can look at on that one is think that he knew that they were going to close in on him. I mean, mm -hmm. he's, he's got the investigator calling him. I can only assume that Tammy, his wife is questioning him as much as she says, I'm going to stand by my man. He wouldn't do anything like that. I just have a hard time believing that she's not looking at him saying, what yeah you know, you know well and i mean it's like when people confess things to you you think back on those times and you're like maybe i should have known or maybe that was right. weird or you yeah. know something like that and you're just like what you know it does make you question even the smallest things about the right. said person right so, so i would think that you know he probably was feeling the pressure of all of this and felt like um it was gonna you know that that they were gonna figure this out um While awaiting trial in jail, he phoned his wife and she came in to visit him. And during that um, meeting, he confessed to her and gave her the location of the body of Donna Weiss. She wanted to go to the family of Donna in order to have them recover the body. But police were contacted and she led them to her remains. Okay. So you're telling me that she's still going to try to help this guy, her husband. Mm -hmm. And she thinks that going to the family of a victim who was murdered by this, her husband. Yeah. 
is what? You know what I, I mean? Like when, I, when I'm reading the article about why she's thinking that, I think like she thinks that he's going to get less time. Or I think she thought cops, it would like, be they're easy. not going to actually involve the cops or that she thought it would be easier on them if they went out and like, oh, so she's trying to have a heart. Like, well, I think that would be terrible. I mean, I to have a family member go out and uncover the remains of your loved one who you're still hoping might still be out there. Yeah. So, because we haven't even talked about Donna yet and who she was. And certainly her murder was not on the radar of police and, and him. Right. So Donna Weiss was a Southwest Texas state university graduate who dreamed of becoming an interpreter. She was very proud of her German heritage, graduating with a minor in German. She was a Texas City resident who went missing on June 16th during a Friday night cruise on Palmer Highway. And when they talk about Friday night cruise on Palmer Highway, so we did this when I was a kid, you know, all the high school students and some of the college students who had came back, um, they would get together, different cars would be going up Palmer Highway. We'd stop at different places like mm-hmm. the bowling alley and, and different places. I mean, in my small town, it wasn't Palmer Highway, but you can see how it would right. be. Palmer would be kind of that main drag where you have the bowling alley of a couple other places up and down yeah. there. We definitely had a place like that too. Right. The Franklin Square. I mean, you drove in circles. Mm-hmm. You go down the street, circle around, come up the street, circle around. You yeah. Know? You're dropped off at like, you know, the place where you get a milkshake and mm-hmm. then you pick up a ride with somebody else who you know. And so obviously during this Friday night, um, she got picked up by Gribble and um, he then took her to a um location outside of santa fe which was the car rental um dealership that was once owned by his parents he um brought her into a um shed he raped her he murdered her and then he buried her body on the property when Gribble talks about this, he says at first the sex was consensual and then he ended up raping her and murdering her. He strangled her. Um, I, I don't know what to say about at first the sex was consensual. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just a way of minimizing uh, yeah. what exactly what he did. Um, when she disappeared, so she disappears in, in June of 1986, she disappears so close to the disappearance of Shelly Sykes that residents in Texas City talk about how in all of these businesses, there were posters of Shelly Sykes and there were posters of Donna Weiss because both of them were Texas City students. And um, people really started to talk at that point in time that they felt like there was a serial killer involved. Right. And I mean, in the murder of both of these girls in a way they're right they they were they'd be partially right yeah so so donna weiss would certainly be killed by somebody who was a serial killer uh shelly sykes by all accounts from what we understand was killed by two people who we don't think that there are Mm -hmm. any other victims for them but um with donna weiss she probably knew him and trusted him. And so he was well known in the community and very well trusted in the community. Even by law enforcement. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
even to the point that the uh, chief of police in Texas City said this was this was a nice guy, you know, that when he worked at the at the um, service station, that the chief of police's wife would bring the car in and Gribble would drive his wife home mm-hmm. while the car was getting worked on. And the chief of police trusted him. He was yeah. the nicest guy. And that's a lot of what everybody, you know, different but she people could have been a victim of him too. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, luckily she was right. You know, and, and from, from all accounts, I mean, really we're very lucky that we may not have more more i mean Mm -hmm. we do know that there's one more which we'll talk about here in just a second but um but this was this was your neighbor this was your friend the guy who comes over and plays poker you know there are um people from who went to school with him and and hung out with him that just said he was he was everybody's friend, friendly, you know, willing to to do anything to help you out. The typical neighbor in these small towns, and um, and so he would have been somebody that she could have trusted. Um, when she may have recognized. I mean, like mm-hmm. you said, I mean, she probably recognized him from town, you know. Right. And, and then he takes advantage opportunity. of that. Yeah. Right. And. This goes to show you don't know your, really know your neighbors, you know? You don't know your neighbors. Who they really are. So. Um, the police then go back in and begin questioning him a lot more about Weiss's case. And at that point in time, he confesses again to the murder of a hitchhiker named Christy or Christina. Um, it's obviously he didn't get her last name. Um, he picked her up in Dickinson around October or November of 1985. Uh, she wanted a ride to Austin. He um, said she was a medium build woman with brownish blonde hair in her 20s wearing jeans and a blouse and that she gave him $10 for gas. He agreed to take her to Austin. He drove up Highway 6, which we've talked about quite a bit, mm-hmm. into Fort Bend County. And at that point in time, he raped and strangled her, placed her body near the Brazos River, near Highway 59, which is um, up in that area. So you're really starting to get into the Houston area at that point. No body or missing person was found in the area that he uh, took them to. The river had flooded several times and it's known to have flooded and gone over its banks, you know, to date more times than can be counted. At that point, Gribble starts claiming that maybe it was that he had strangled and raped Christy, but maybe after that, that she was really alive and she simply got up and walked away. Um, I, I don't I don't think that that's actually a possibility. I think that unfortunately, Christy or Christina has never been identified. Mm-hmm. Her remains have never been identified. And so there's not a whole lot that can go forward on this case. Um, when people are out there, you know, searching and, and listening for something to, to take a look at, I've done as much as I can possibly do with with this at this point in time. And that's partly just because of time. Um, but I would encourage anybody who has the time who wants to take this up to try looking for 
missing persons um, or also unidentified remains that may match this. I know there are a couple of threads out there in, in web, web sleuths where people have kind of taken up this cause. I don't think that it has gone very far, mm -hmm. but there's a couple of things, you know, that might be worth mentioning with her that just come to my mind, you know, that could be an alias that she's using. Sure. And she could be from the Austin area. If she's trying to get there. Right. You know, I mean, hitchhiking all the way to Austin, that's far, you know, yeah. I mean, not uncommon, I guess at that time to be hitchhiking, but mm -hmm. that's not local. You know? Well, and then the, the last part, too, is does she have some connection with Dickinson? Yeah. I mean, that's where she's picked up. Or, And then, again, I wouldn't get stuck on that, too. If you're hitchhiking and you're in the Dickinson area, it is very possible that you were in Galveston and got a ride out of Galveston to Dickinson or got a ride from Louisiana to, like, the Dickinson area. Even Corpus Christi to the Dickinson area. Right. And, and it does seem like, you know, she would be the type of, of girl that would be willing to hitchhike long distances, especially if she's trying to get to Austin. Right. And who knows if Gribble even remembers her name correctly. And that's and that's the key. I mean, you can use some of what Gribble's trying to say here about October and November of 1985 as a roundabout her missing date. But I think you have to take it from October to November of, of 1985, expand into when he basically um, is under arrest for the murder of Libby, which is in 1987, in September of 1987, because it's at that point, we have a very open, wide area, but we know that he was in prison shortly before that on the other charges. So, so we only have a certain span of time here that he's out. Um, I don't think the fact that he's getting married or doing any of that puts it out of the realm because what we know is that he's getting married in the same month to Tammy that he kills Donna. I know that's bizarre. That is bizarre behavior. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I think the only thing that we can do is look at missing persons who maybe match close to her description, who, could have possibly been in the area around that time period and also remains. Gribble's trial on the uh, Libby Elizabeth Jones um, murder case began October of 1988. Gribble pled not guilty. The trial only lasted four days. The defense did not put up much of a defense, only trying to make a case that he did not plan to kill her. And this would have made the difference between him possibly being sent to death or possibly uh, being able to have um, the possibility of of getting out at some point in time while he was still alive. He was, um, in the end, the jury convicted him of capital murder. At the sentencing hearing of that, three women testified about being sexually assaulted by Gribble. On the defense side, a psychiatrist testified that Gribble may have been molested as a child. His family was very poor while he was young, and his father may have been kind of a strong patriarchal 
figure, which might have been a little bit abusive. Not necessarily were they saying that his father was abusive, but that maybe Gribble kind of felt like he was abusive. The jury decided on the death sentence at, for Gribble on October 28th of 1988. It would be a roller coaster ride for the state because the, it was quickly his conviction was quickly overturned in 1990, and the reason that his conviction was overturned is they um, stated that the jury should have been given better jury instructions around mental illness and child sexual abuse, so that they could consider that in part of the penalty phase, and he might have not gotten the death penalty. Um, and so he would be retried in 1992. The second trial was about the same as the first, same defense and everything like that. Again, aiming at trying to get him convicted in Texas of simply murder and not capital murder, which would have at least allowed him to possibly get paroled at some point in time. He was convicted again and the jury took only two hours to return the death sentence. Um, he would die by lethal injection on March 18th, 2000 in Huntsville, Texas. At the time, he was only 36 years old. This is the same age that Elizabeth was when she was murdered. His last words were, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I'm truly sorry. I mean it. I'm sorry. I'm not just saying it. He also wrote a letter to apologize to both the Jones and the Weiss family. In the letter, he does apologize that he's so sorry that he has taken them both away from their families. During this time that he's writing this letter, he also makes a distinction to say that he only killed two women. So um, he doesn't say that he never, um, he just says that he only ever killed two women and that would have been Donna and Elizabeth. One of the things that he does say is that the police made him confess to this third murder. And it was it was the police who kind of forced him into that. I find that hard to believe. You know, I mean, the Christina probably wasn't even on their radar at that point. You know, they well, probably had to go look her up. Well, they when he's I don't saying this stuff, you know, I don't know. So they couldn't even look her up. So, right. I mean, he confesses to Christina. They're not able to find a missing persons report on her. They're not able to find a body on her. They're not even able to say we have this unidentified body that we're going to say is Christina. So obviously when people, um, when police, and I do know that there's police corruption, but in this case, I'm going to make it a hard no, that I don't think there was. Um, but that happens in cases sometimes where maybe they do have a case of one or two murders and they have a third murder that looks similar. And so they get the person to confess to that third one. Or, you know, there is the case in Texas where they got somebody to confess to like 200 murders. <laughs> but they had those murders. This is a police department that doesn't even have a case. Right. That... That even in talking to other police departments, they can't even pin a case on this guy that is similar or anything like this confession. So to say that the police are feeding him this information and he confesses to it because the police just want to get him for another murder seems a little far-fetched to me. You know, there are plenty of murders that we have covered on this podcast 
that maybe you could have tried to mm -hmm. push him into that they would have been wanting to solve. I mean, I believe he's in jail during the Calder Field murders, but, you know, they had some cases out there they wanted to solve. And I don't think that it made their job still to this day any easier to have somebody claim that they killed somebody where they can't find a body and they can't find a missing person's mm -hmm. case. And so to me, I'm going to say no. No. Um, on that you know one. what's weird to me with the the whole letters to these families too is he goes kind of on a soapbox right about um lethal injection or capital murder right and how it's not fair to him almost he does he you know i mean here you are apologizing to these families that you've murdered their loved ones and in such a, a horrible fashion and but you want to take this and also make it about you know the, the death penalty and what he basically says is that the death penalty is an un unnecessary punishment for society that has other means to protect itself and you cannot rectify one death with another we can debate the death penalty in many many different places and i'm not gonna going to talk about my feelings about that um both of us have I think some differing feelings than each other. So, you know, I, I don't want to make this about that. What I, what I hate about this is that he's taken that apology to those families and again, brought it back around to make mm -hmm. it about him. And I think, you know, one of the things to me that clearly comes across of Gribble is even though he had the psychiatrist testify, he, such a narcissist. I wouldn't have killed her if she wouldn't have screamed. You know, I the sex was consensual, but then, you know, it changed. You know, it's just And then the whole assault on his ex-wife almost like, you know, she's my property. Yeah, yeah, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I don't know. So, you know, that's kind of that's kind of where it lies there. You know, again, there were different people who came out and said, you know, it was hard to believe that this, you know, that this was who he was, you know, that he just, he showed a different person to them, you know, and I think he showed a different person to, to, to Tammy. And, um, Did, you know, do you know if she was there when he was executed? I do not. I didn't. I didn't find any any reference uh, to that. I'm just curious about so, that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. But it's, yeah, stand by it's your a, man. It's a good question. <laughs> so I think by that time she she was pretty much gone. So you think? And out the door after all that and 15 months of marriage. My goodness. <laughs> okay. On that note. <laughs> I think we should probably finish up here today. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. And we wanted to thank those of you who have contacted us um, and asked for their uh, swag. We have sent out a few stickers. And um, in doing that, if you are interested in your Bodies and Bayou stickers, there is still time to get one. So just contact us on our Facebook page and we will get one sent out to you. Right. And uh, you still have plenty of time. April 19th is the deadline for that. So definitely reach out. They're, they're neat. They're cool. You can see the, see them on our Facebook page. Right. So, And if you're not following us on our Facebook page, please take the time to go ahead and follow us. And if you do like what we're doing here, please rate us on um, 
the platform that you're listening to our podcasts. So we are certainly looking for ratings and we're always looking for feedback too. So you can contact us on those platforms, you know, and give us some feedback about how you think we could do this better. Um, other cases that you think that maybe we should be looking into or um, just to say hi. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening.